Uh, we're delighted that um, we have James. James, that you've come uh, here this morning. Uh, we're absolutely thrilled. James, why don't you come up? Uh, give James a, a warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen. A round of applause. James, I'm sure he'll tell you some things no. about... He will not tell you anything about himself. No. Uh, you, can come and sit, you can stand here or there. Or even like. um, James is fascinating. He's got fingers in all sorts of pies. And um, he, he's uh, been involved in business in the city. He's worked with Jackie Pullinger in Hong Kong and uh, continues to support her. He set up a charity. He set up a charity called The Beesum. He works in micro-enterprise and supporting businesses for um, uh, women, particularly in the southwest London, who are um, looking to start their own businesses and get themselves on their, uh, on their feet. Uh, he runs a farm. He's a farmer down in um, Dorset, Devon. Somerset. Somerset. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sacrilege. But um, he'll tell you a little bit more about that, or maybe he won't. But um, the one thing, whenever I think about James, and particularly this morning, the sense that I have um, is... I was reminded of some verses from Psalm 27, and they're these, which is, when I think of James, he strikes me as a man who's prayed this prayer and embodies this prayer of David, which is one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Because all the things that James does all the things that he's involved in, first and foremost, he's an absolutely passionate follower of Jesus. He's somebody who's encountered um, the grace of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and has given his whole life, as far as I can tell, in surrendered abandonment to pursuing Christ his, uh, and his cause. So um, it's a privilege for us to have you here with us. Um, uh, let me just pray for you. Lord, we are, thank you for James. Just stretch out a hand where you are. And uh, Lord, we pray your blessing upon him. Fill him with your Holy Spirit. It's overflowing. Put words in his mouth, words in his heart, Lord, and speak to us as your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 James. Thank you so much. My daughter said if I wore this sort of microphone, I should practice a routine with them. So I'll give you that at the end, if you're good. So it's, um, it's always hard to know where to begin in a place like this. So just give me a couple of minutes. So I need to find out a bit about you, really, because there's no point my speaking to you at the wrong level. So just a few questions. Perhaps you guys at the back could help answer these questions because you're closer to them than some others. How long did the Hundred Years' War last? <laughs> Very close, 116. Good. Watch this guy. Um, in which month do the Russians celebrate the October Revolution? Yeah, pretty poor, I see. Mm. Yeah, that's November, of course. Um, what's a camel's hairbrush made of? Squirrel fur. Gosh. 
And the Canary Islands are named after which animal? The dog, good, at last, an adult. That's got to be a start, I suppose. Well, one more then. What colour is a purple finch? <laughs> OK, well, you're getting it now. Crimson. OK, I'll we'll have to pitch it quite low then. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want to talk a bit um, today about the possibility of two very different lives. When Dickens wrote A Tale of Two Cities in 1859, he couldn't have known that the themes of wealth and poverty, of death and resurrection, of tyranny and violence, of powerlessness and the desire to see transformation and change would continue to resonate over 150 years later. But they do, don't they, these themes? Maybe he knew the human condition well enough to realize that they would. His opening lines of that book, which you're probably studying, you guys at the back, so you'll recognize it perfectly well, are a sensible place to start this morning. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, the age of foolishness, the epoch of belief, the epoch of incredulity, the season of light, the season of darkness, the spring of hope, the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. What could better describe what's happening around us at the moment, I wonder? I happen to be one of those who believe that this uh, nation has overstepped the mark, as did that first generation of the children of Israel after they'd crossed the Red Sea and before they went and never did go into the Promised Land. And that we, like they in Deuteronomy 2, are now irreversibly under God's judgment. Unless we turn like Nineveh, which I think isn't going to happen as a nation to us, but there's still much to be done in this country against the tragic backdrop of Arnold's melancholy long withdrawal of faith. And in my view, there's an urgency to do it that has absolutely no precedent in British history. There are many, many people to pull from the flames whilst there's yet time, and many, many people to disciple who have just gotten to the starting blocks of a faith and there they stand, as Wesley used to say, like orphans for the murderer. I suppose I'm comforted down at the farm on some of these long autumn nights, at least, by the old saying that says it doesn't matter if the glass is half empty or half full as long as there's whiskey in it. <laughs> now, I wonder what you reckon the word few means. As a lawyer writing prospectuses for many years in London and Tokyo and uh, New York, I used to need to know the, condition, the, the, uh, the connotations of words very exactly because investment choices depended on them. I had to decide whether a word like substantial indicated a greater or lesser risk than the word significant, for instance, or in what order of magnitude to put the words material, considerable, sizable, and important. Some of you lawyers will know how unbelievably dull the stuff can be as well. <laughs> but a few is my question. How many would you say a few was out of a hundred? What's a few? Can you get to five, perhaps? Could you get to ten, possibly? Might somewhere there? Can we be happy there? It's said in the most recent Pew research that about a third of the world claim to be Christians, and yet Jesus says that small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Well, a third is not a few. 
how many people, how very many millions of people there are today who believe that they're on the road to eternal life when they absolutely aren't. And whose responsibility is that? And are we not responsible as well for the bulk of the world's population who have yet to stumble upon the extraordinary figure of Jesus Christ? Oh yes, there's a lot of work to be done to fulfill the Great Commission. Our Lord is waiting for disciples to follow him into the harvest fields. I don't know about you, but discipleship to me is something that you catch. It's caught, not taught. I, I can manage six disciples a year. That's all I can do. And I've been doing that for about 15 years now. It's not many, is it, to make ready for the battlefield. Lewis says, no inch of ground goes uncontested. Are we ready for the battlefield? I hear people who are putting their armor on every morning uh, from Ephesians 6, which is great, but why on earth are they taking it off? Ever. Our Lord seemed to operate with those sorts of numbers. It's not a bad model. I spoke with two very different men recently about what they thought God felt about them. Both had a huge faith. One had been very sad at school, gone astray, been caught as a teenager and given a formal police warning for shoplifting, dealt drugs at university, failed his degree, had any number of uh, relationships before two broken engagements, addicted to cocaine for a year and more, changed jobs three or four times before leaving London to do manual work uh, on a farm in the countryside. The other sailed through school, through Oxford, joined one of the premier city firms, had a successful city career, and retired to the country in his early 40s, happily married with lovely children. And I asked them both the same question that I put to you today. What's God's definition of success? What's his definition of success? Because we are getting this so wrong. Let me give you my idea for it. Anyway, you can work on it. It is that we learn how to love and love deeply. Then we love and love deeply. And then we teach others how to love and love deeply. And that's all. That's all. None of the rest really counts. You will have guessed, of course, that I'm both of those men. Just depends how you write your CV, doesn't it? I wrote my last one 27 years ago now when I mentioned my Christian faith as a hobby. Thank God Jesus come to the, didn't come to the earth as a hobby. <laughs> Talk about acknowledging him before man. I didn't learn anything from my worldly successes at all other than the depths that pride can take a man. If I've learned anything at all these last 30 years of single-minded, single-focused follower, following Christ, sharing his heart for the poor and focused up on them in Beesom and in face-to-face -face and some other ministries, it's come from my times of failure in the eyes of the world. So here's my next question to you, and you'll need to speak to the people next to you just for a couple of minutes on this one. What would your CV look like if you were applying for a job as a disciple of Jesus is on the beach at Galilee. Just get some headings with the people next to you for a minute. What are the headings? Can I tell you now that only the name and address and phone number will remain the same? And then you can work out why later on. But just ask now. Just, just say to the person next to you, say, what would Jesus be interested in?
Okay, well, you can carry that on later on. I recommend it as something to do when you're sitting doing nothing else. There were, of course, there were, of course, no CVs for that role. Jesus chose each of his disciples, finding one under a tree, four on the beach, one at a tax stall, and thank heavens, what a motley crew they were. There's hope for us all, isn't there? But there is a lesson to be learned from his choices as well, and it's a crucial one. I want to start this morning by looking at the parables of the uh, hidden treasure and the pearl in Matthew 13, which I'll read. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Who's the man who finds the treasure and the pearl of great price? What's the treasure? What's the pearl? We so often hear this interpreted differently, don't we? But Jesus is the man who finds the treasure, and that's us. We're the treasure. We're the pearl, and he gave up everything to find us. He'll go wherever he must, anywhere in the globe, to find those who want to be found. It's just a question whether we want to be found by him or not. And then he gave his whole life for us. It's always a choice, of course. There are lots of people who don't want to be found. There's an increasing number of people in this country who are just plain indifferent. They couldn't care less if they're found or not, actually. And they're almost impossible to reach, at least until our Lord in his mercy allows tragedy in their lives. Yet further, when those that he has found go astray, because we always do, this God of grace, this extraordinary God who died for you and me in agony on a cross, this God of love will stand and wait for our return and then run towards us when he sees us, finding us again as we come slowly towards him in the rags of despair or depravity or degradation or decadence with his cloak flapping around his bandy legs and will take us up into his embrace and will tell us that he doesn't condemn us as the world does and will kiss us and tell us not to sin again. The translators of the parable of the prodigal son were almost certainly fairly repressed middle-class academics. You probably have to be for that job. That's why so much of the Bible needs to be looked at in as many different translations as possible, preferably the original in an interlinear form if you can, because that's the best. And so much of every trans translation betrays the background and the mindset of the translators. So much misses the point or the nuance. So much is straightforwardly wrong as a result. They don't begin, the translators, to get the meaning of what happened in that encounter between the father and the wayward son right. They don't begin to get it right. Often it's said that the son repented when he turned and left the pig troughs. I don't see any evidence of that myself uh, in, in, the, in the parable. I think he just went back for a cushy job knowing that he'd be well-treated by his dad. You know, the Greek implies something far more profound than that, that the father held the son in his arms and kissed him 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 until he melted and never wanted to leave again. I just wonder whether you know the kisses of an all-loving father.
yet. You'll swiftly know if you have, because maybe for the first time, or maybe for the first time for a long time, you can breathe out. You can let your shoulders down. You can untense. You can stand up straight. You can look other people in the eye. You can feel the burdens shifting. But do you even want to be found? Maybe you're one of those who's just indifferent. Perhaps you once were found, were once passionate about him, even, and, and then spun away or slunk away. Or your lifestyle choices have gradually led you away from that place where you were passionate about him once. Taking you away from the front line. God doesn't hate his enemies. He loves, he loves his enemies. But he does hate the lukewarm almost as much as he hates the hypocrites. And he'll spit them out of his mouth, he says. He'll find you again, though, as soon as you let him, if that's you. That passage in Revelations has Jesus saying this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We know that one very well. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. And the promise stands for all of us who were once found but fell away. Again, perhaps, and again, God overpowered, as John warns, by the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his heart, lust of his eyes, or the boasting of what he has and does regardless of the state of the room into which we invite him. Have you ever thought of that? Regardless of the fact that the walls are covered in graffiti. Regardless of the chaos inside the room. Regardless, perhaps, of the stench. His grace is as far above our so swift condemnation as is his love above our shame. All he asks of us is to come back stumbling into his arms. I didn't want to be found by him when I was young. I was very arrogant, certain of my ways, confident as the youngest son in my family, expensively educated and groomed. Yes, I know, how have the mighty fallen. I had no sense whatever that I needed to be found, living a life of ease perhaps, but looking back causing untold misery to so many as I strode very successfully in the world's eyes towards a city career. I was a seeker after the truth, but only on my terms. God doesn't usually find people like I was. He allows us to hear often enough, but we swiftly turn our backs. Not many are wise by human standards, as Paul explained it to the Corinthian church. Not many are influential in the world's understanding of that word. Not many are of noble birth. Why? Because such people as I was rarely feel the need to be found by him in their lives. We're doing fine, thank you. Usually reckon they know all the answers. I certainly did. We need to pray for them, the worldly wise, especially those who are drawing them away from what's true, the Dawkinses and the Dennets and the Hitchens. We need to pray for them because their future is appalling to imagine. Since I'm on Dawkins, here's a good thing to do. You have to close your ears at the back. Um, next time you go to a bookshop, this is what I do. Take all the books by Dawkins and pop them under fiction. <laughs> um, when I found 
that I couldn't find the fiction section the other day at Waterstones and Taunton in Somerset. I found another one which was equally good, actually, tragic life stories. <laughs> good place for them, really. I just wonder what the guys on the CCTV camera <laughs> imagine is going on. I don't think it's necessarily illegal. I just feel terribly, terribly sorry for them living a negative and a negative that's so wrong. Lewis described himself at the moment of his conversion in 1929 as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Thirty years ago, I was certainly the second. And after three and a half years of very forensic research trying to disprove the claims uh, of Christ, I found that they were true, but it didn't mean anything to me at all. It didn't change my style of life or my thinking at all, because an intellectual faith is no faith. As St. Francis says, love can teach in an instant what a thousand volumes cannot teach. Even when Jesus broke my heart for the poor a couple of years later and I went to work for the first time with Jackie Pullinger and the heroin addicts in Hong Kong, that was still not enough to get me to change my course. Yes, he'd broken my heart and he had my intellect, but he didn't have my will. How often do we go along taking God with us on our journey rather than going his? And because I was such an arrogant man, he had to take me to a very dark place in order to ask me that question, which way will you go, my way or your way? Which way is it to be? And I spiraled down until I hit rock bottom, and there was the rock, sure enough. And I decided to go his way. I'm very posh. I said, okay, Yahweh. <laughs> and there I discovered a rock, and I agreed to go his way. That was when, like the old Atlantic slave trader, John Newton in the 18th century, I could first understand that I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But at last, at last, I could begin to see. Many of us, though, don't think that God really wants to find the likes of us at all. I really want to talk to you particularly this morning. Those who perhaps feel unworthy or insignificant or unnoticed, just passed by. Perhaps you're saying even now, well, if only he knew. You see, the world has gotten into the fibers of our church. Not this church, not now, but 1,700 years ago or more, the world got into the fibers of the church, and it places on pedestals now the people that the world places on pedestals. The articulate ones, the educated ones, the presentable ones, the strong ones, the handsome ones, the ones who can describe things well without hesitating and stuttering, the ones who are doing well in their profession, and the rich often. But Jesus, on the whole, looks elsewhere. The top chaps in the Sanhedrin were astonished at the wisdom of Peter and John that day when they were hauled up before him and said, hang on a moment, these are just ordinary, uneducated men, which they were. And that's who God was using. Jesus spent his time incarnate on earth at the bottom of the pile. He chose always by preference to spend his time with the poor and only spent his time with the rich by invitation. That's where he's still to be found 
always is there amongst the poor, amongst the marginalized. And if he's our model for all that he considers to be true and right and pure and excellent and admirable and praiseworthy, then that's where we need to be as well, amongst the poor and the marginalized. And it's absolutely central that to the faith, to a correct understanding of the faith of every Christ follower. It can't be delegated. We can't delegate any of this to other people. It doesn't say I was hungry and they. It says I was hungry and you. It's us. I always ask myself, if not me, who, Lord? And if not now, Lord, then when? You should expect this, given that the Hebrew prophets made injustice endured at the hands of the mighty, the very lens through which they looked, the very lens through which they spoke. And John couldn't have been clearer, could he? If you have material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and have no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Don't kid yourselves, says John, who Jesus knew best. Don't kid yourselves. How can the love of God be in you? Bonhoeffer finally got to a place where he said this. He said, not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. It's time we spoke. It's time we acted, you and me. It may be too late for the nation, but it's not too late for so many, 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 many people. I just want to look at two women who were grossly mistreated in the Bible for a moment by those around them. Both made mistakes. Both were outcasts. Both were behaving very badly at different times. Both were full of self-pity. Both were proud and angry, willful, but both have been poorly treated. They were, in reality, despairing and sad, and their lives were in a mess. And God saw straight through the outward appearance, because he's not very interested in the outward appearance like we are. He's only interested in the heart. God saw that they needed to be found quickly. Let's look quickly at Hagar, Sarah's servant. In Genesis 16, we learn that Hagar began to despise her mistress once she knew that uh, she, Hagar, was pregnant and her mistress, Sarah, was barren. But in return, it just says Sarah ill-treated her, and so she flees. And in verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Not as if God didn't know where she was. Just as if uh, God didn't know where Adam and Eve had hidden. When he cried out that great passionate cry of broken relationship, Where are you? in the Garden of Eden that reverberates down every generation and comes right down to us today. Where on earth do we think we've gone from an all-loving creator God? No, the word's much stronger. Knowing where she was, he went and found her there. And then the angel asked her two questions that he always asks all of us. Where have you come from and where are you going? Are you going to leave behind that which was? and head towards that which could be. That's your choice. And having stumbled upon the way of holiness by the grace of an all-loving God, will we now give the rest of our lives to him, to our creator? And the second woman, she at the well, at John 4, the Samaritan woman, Jesus asked her a slightly subtler question, although, although he was very intentional. 
in the midst of an abysmal set of life choices that she had made. Will you give me a drink? He might as well, he might as well have asked, is there anything about your life that you could offer to anyone that was worthwhile? Is there anything that you could offer someone in need? And he was a man and a Jew, so it's pretty surprising to her anyway that he should talk to her. Are we living life in a way that offers nothing but the short term, quenching of a person's thirst? She too recognized that she'd been found, and they're both offered hope and a future. And then something happens to them. They begin to melt. Their anger fades away. Their lives begin to be transformed as they breathe out. Their faith comes alive. Hagar recognizes that it's God himself who's come to care for her. And she says this in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You're the God who sees me. And she names the well where she was found. The God who sees me. That's what happens when we're found. We get seen through and through and through by someone who knows our needs and our hopes and our fears our sinful nature, and yet he loves us. And the Samaritan woman recognized just as much that she had come into the presence of God himself, that the water that he offered was a spring that could well up into eternal life. And she has meaning, restored to her life again. Knows she'll never thirst again, never leave the God who found her that day. In Eastern Orthodox tradition, she dies a martyr, tortured to death on the instructions of Emperor Nero. When Hagar goes off track again later, as we always do, waiting in the desert again to die of thirst, God finds her, brings her back, opens her eyes to the fact that there's a spring just next to her. It's always there. It's our choice. It's always there, the spring. He is always there. We just have to say, find me, or find me again. He's always there. The well that Hagar named that first time were told lay between Kadesh and Bered, which were two places at the time, but one means holiness and the other means judgment. That's where the cross is, right there. Right there, halfway, between Kadesh and Bered. We can go to it whenever we like, and he's there for us whenever we want him to be there. Come, he says, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever's thirsty, let them come, whoever wishes, let her take the free gift of the water of life. Shall we be found, or found again this morning, wherever we need to be found, in whatever area of our life we've chosen to walk away from him, perhaps? There are two cities, just as there were in Dickens's tale. There's Vanity Fair, or there's the city that is to come. Two destinations, one at the end of a wide path that has so many of our friends and family on it leads to destruction, and the other the narrow path that few find that leads to life in all its abundance. They're both, of course, signposted heaven by those who are on them. But for the grace of God, I would be the one who was on the wrong one today, heading the wrong way. But I met him all those 30 years ago and more. And he kissed me, and he kissed me. He kissed me until I melted and never, ever wanted to leave him again. And all now I want to show other people and tell other people is that there is that God, the Father God, right there, 
desperate to find you or to find you again if you've gone astray. And all he asks of you is that you would stumble into the everlasting arms of your creator God and allow him to kiss you and kiss you and kiss you until you too can melt. I wonder if you know the kisses of an all-loving father because if you don't, I recommend them to you. Shall we pray?